From the PA Foundation, I'm Andrea Lowe. Welcome to Vital Minds, a podcast connecting the most vital issues in clinical care with the top minds facing them every day. If you are a regular listener of Vital Minds, my voice may be familiar to you. Last fall, I had the pleasure of joining host James Millward for a special episode about leadership in the PA profession. Today, I'm excited to step in as your guest host for an episode about a very important topic. According to the Cleveland Clinic, between 50 to 75% of new mothers experience what is often referred to as the baby blues after giving birth. About 15% of those women will develop a more severe and long-lasting condition called postpartum depression after delivery. Postpartum depression, or PPD, has become a trending topic and buzzword in popular media in recent years. But it's also a very serious issue and one that we're eager to address for you. Today, I'm joined by my two guests who bring expertise from both OBGYN and psychiatry. Kathleen Earhart, a PA who serves as Assistant Program Director at the South University. Joining her is Jacob Wills, a PA, a provider specializing in behavioral health from Lehigh Valley Health Network. Welcome to Vital Minds, Kathy and Jake. Thanks, Andrea. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's good to be here, Andrea. So before we get started, you two have such a nice connection. Can you tell our listeners how you all know each other? Well, Kathy had the esteemed and distinct pleasure of dealing with me for a full year when I was in training at the Sales University during my didactic year. I still have very scarred memories from those early uh, cardiac lectures in H&P number one, but uh, uh, I really... Uh, came to work uh, a long time with Kathy uh, as a student and then later as a fellow faculty member at that program. And I really do appreciate all the hard work that she put into my training and my subsequent development. And, you know, DeSales University has a really great PA program. uh, And uh, I think Kathy is a very huge part of that. So it's a nice honor to be with her today. Thanks, Jake. It's nice to be with you as well. I I have very fond memories of both you as a student as well as um, wonderful fond memories as a, as a faculty member with us. So it's great having this connection. That's so wonderful. And I'm so pleased you're both here today because the combination of your specialties will really help foster a good discussion about postpartum depression. So before we dive in, at Vital Minds, we always like to ask our guests what inspired them to work in medicine and ultimately become a PA. Can you fill us in on that? Sure. I um I spent uh, part of my teenage years volunteering in a nursing home, and I loved interacting with the residents and saw how just talking with them uh, was therapeutic and brightened their day, and it truly brightened my day as well. Um, I learned about the PA profession from my guidance counselor in high school, and listening to him, I felt like the profession was a great fit for me, and I became a PA. So being a PA for 30 years has been a a great uh, joy of my life. As for me, I initially wanted to do psychological research, and I spent a good time of my undergraduate uh, training uh, or career, as you might say, uh, working with student-athletes, doing uh, pre- and post-concussion research. Um, But after a a good amount of time doing research and and reading studies and writing studies and and spending less time with with people and, and, and I felt more time writing, I, I realized it wasn't for me, and, and that's why I, I sort of luckily fell into PA school to a degree, 
Um, but it, immediately it became, a, it was obvious to me that it was a much better fit. Um, so that's kind of my story in terms of getting to the PA profession. Great. Thanks for sharing. So we have a serious topic to discuss today, one that is often misunderstood and like many mental illnesses is linked to stigma. In the introduction, I mentioned a statistic that up to 75% of women experience some sort of depression, ranging from what is commonly known as the baby blues to postpartum depression after giving birth. Does this surprise either of you? It doesn't surprise me at all. Um, This is a very common condition that I saw lots of times when I was working full-time in clinical OB-GYN practice. Tackle that. I mean, this is something that uh, is kind of an obvious kind of thing that you would almost expect to a degree. There are so many things that happen to the body uh, after a baby is born. And, you know, having that affect hormone levels and, and all that has an impact on, you know, neurotransmitters and your mood, it's, it's not surprising to me at all. And that's completely taking out the major life change that occurs there as well. So this is not surprising to me. Yeah, and that's so interesting. And I think as we dive in more into uh, the podcast, we're really going to be able to, sh- to have our listeners really have that connectivity between the two. So for some of our listeners who might not be as familiar with this topic, can you break down the continuum of postpartum depression? The term baby blues really does not cover the full gamut of PPD and can sound almost dismissive when you are talking about someone who is going through a more serious form of depression. Absolutely. So one thing that's really important is is to know that normally in postpartum, there are significant changes in sleep and energy level and appetite because of the changes that a newborn brings to the family. Jake mentioned this as well. And some of these are just normal changes in some patients. With baby blues, this will usually occur um, several days postpartum and usually will resolve within about a week or so postpartum. Patients will be, you know, have insomnia. They'll be crying. They might um, be fatigued and have poor concentration. And it's important just to recognize it and support those patients. With postpartum depression, the symptoms are usually start a little bit later. They start about a week postpartum and often last longer, up to a month or so. And these patients will have the same symptoms as baby blues, but they're going to be irritable. They're going to have, uh, be very labile. They're not going to sleep well. They might sleep too much or sleep too little. They're going to have anxiety. They're going to have difficulty caring for their baby. And one of the important things that we should note is that the symptoms are often worse in the evening. You know, these patients, it's important to recognize because their treatment is different. Uh, Jake probably has the most experience talking about postpartum psychosis. Um, which is much, much less common, but it's more uh, commonly talked about in the media. Postpartum psychosis is something that is very, very uncommon. In fact, it's about, I think the statistic is about one to two out of a thousand mothers uh, will have postpartum psychosis. So it's a very, very low rate. So when these things are often brought up in, in media, this is a very small percentage of people. And a lot of times, you know, Based on history, we can be prepared for a lot of those situations. Very rarely is there a patient that has a postpartum psychosis that didn't have psychosis previously or didn't have some sort of family history. Moving back to the the baby blues issue, um, a lot of this is, is normal changes for the woman's body. I mean, we know that 
you know, there's a decrease in estrogen following birth. And that is expected to affect certain levels of certain neurotransmitters, such as dopamine and serotonin, among others. There's also suspected to be a decrease in just general serotonin activity following birth. So because of that, this can lead to a lot of sadness or dysphoria or crying or irritability, a lot of anxiety. These things can happen. When we talk about postpartum depression, this is not something that lasts for a week or two. This is something that lasts, you know, it can last up to a month or so, depending upon or until adequate treatment is achieved. Usually these patients will meet criteria for a major depressive episode per the DSM-5. Um, so you're going to see a lot of that, again, sleep changes. It's not just depression, anxiety, fatigue. And oftentimes, you know, we have different ways of rating this based upon the Edinburgh um, postnatal depression scale and how severe they are will really affect what we decide to do moving forward. And this is just speaking about a unipolar depression. I mean, we're not, we haven't even discussed bipolar uh, patients who have a, a mood episode afterwards as well, which will, is a much more risky proposition. So there, there's a lot here, uh, more than just baby blues or just postpartum depression. There's a lot of different degrees of this. It's very nuanced. So for providers like myself that see a lot of these patients in the peripartum period, in your experience, are there warning signs you look for even before delivery in someone at risk for PPD? So um, the way I think about this is it's important to separate things that you look for during pregnancy and things that you look for postpartum. So some of the warning signs for me that I look for is someone that's had an anxiety disorder or a history of a mood disorder. If the pregnancy is unintended or, you know, the, the mom-to-be has a lower socioeconomic status or a lower educational level, if there's, in, there's a problem with their relationship or there's substance abuse during the pregnancy. Someone postpartum, I'm going to also look again with that history of anxiety and depression, but I'm also going to take notice of any stressful life events. It's also important to note how the birth went. Um, you know, was it a traumatic birth? Was there a fetal demise? Was the baby admitted to the, the NICU? Those are all increased risk factors. A mom who has difficulty breastfeeding or a mom that has lack of uh, family or social support, those are all things that make me concerned or make me look for signs for postpartum depression. I agree with everything Kathy said, and that was very comprehensive. You know, and she brought up a good point that we look for certain things during pregnancy and we look for certain symptoms because sometimes you can have depressive symptoms that start during pregnancy. The onset, you know, after um, delivery, that's not the only time you're going to have an initial onset of depression. But we do know that you have a much higher uh, likelihood of having postpartum depression in women who've had previous postpartum depression uh, after previous births. It's about five times higher. So that's a very huge indicator. So the previous um, postpartum depressions and previous mood disorders or uh, mood symptoms prior to this are, are big risk factors. As I stated before, bipolar disorder has a much, much higher rate of risk of a mood episode following uh, birth. So these are things that we really have to be key to, uh, key to look for prior to the baby being born. And then going through the stressful life events, such as a complicated pregnancy or a complicated delivery, um, that can often lead to a poor outcome. Marital familial conflicts, but also just having a lack of support. You know, people who are young, 
you know, 20, if they're single, you know, if they're multi-parents, these are all risk factors that can be related to a, a level of support and a, basically of how the system of the, the woman's uh, household uh, functions and, and following pregnancy. So if they're going into a situation, if you have a, a female uh bringing home a, a, or a mother, bringing home a child and, and heading into a situation that's already had a couple of kids previously with limited supports and limited resources. And potentially, if this is an unwanted pregnancy, these are all humongous risk factors uh, for postpartum depression or large risk factors for postpartum depression. Do you uh, preemptively start counseling them on things to look out for as being their providers that you, when you see these signs and what does that counseling look like? I think it's really important to do those things, Andrea, because there's so much um, stigma around mental illness. And I think if the patients realize that you're very comfortable talking about all these issues with them, then discussing that, you know, you have a history of depression Um, that was treated successfully and now you're pregnant, we need to watch postpartum for any concerns or problems. I think it's important to recognize the risk factors in patients, discuss the risk factors with those patients and their family, and to tell them, you know, please contact contact us if you have any concerns or questions. I also think that there's also a really important component to discussing this in a very open way with the patients because you need to establish trust with the patient prior to delivery. Because if you wait until a later period of time, or if you address it in a way that's not sensitive to the patient and you don't give the patient a, a direct feeling of being able to trust you and you don't build a good rapport with the patient, the, the chances of them after delivery being honest with you or wanting to discuss this in a meaningful way may drop. Um, also if you bring in family, as Kathy said before, that's really important because they need to be aware of what's going on and they're an important resource for you too. If you create a good rapport with the patient and family, you're really setting yourself up to really get the best information in terms of how the patient's doing post-delivery and that can lead to the best treatment and the best outcomes. So you both uh, really touched on important points when it comes to really engaging um, the patient's family and support systems, because um, early on they, as a patient, may not even feel or recognize that or, that they that or admit to that they are having this. So do you find that there is a stigma associated with this issue? Absolutely. You can tell someone you know what happens after a child is born, but they really don't know what goes into it until they're in it. So the idea of somebody who is already having this major life change and then, you know, this is in many ways a woman's oldest job is to rear children. Uh, It's a very personal thing. And oftentimes a new mother who's not even going through any baby blues or is not struggling with postpartum depression often finds that they're, you know, swimming and just trying to keep their head above water. So to be able to talk about how they're feeling in terms of depression, in terms of anxiety, in terms of a lot of these very severe symptoms, it's just very difficult to talk about. And that's outside of the mental health stigma that, you know, we have to deal with anyway. It's, it's a mental health conversations, even though there's more awareness, you know, it, it, there's still a great deal of reluctance for certain people to talk about it and be open about it with their providers, with their family members. 
just look at the life expectancy rate that just came out. Life expectancy rose uh, this year for the first time in four years, but the suicide rate was found to be higher. So we have a lot of work to do in terms of this and in terms of mental health stigma in general. But in this situation, there are so many factors lining up against somebody wanting to open up to you and share how they're feeling in regard to this situation. I think, you know, what, what I have to add is that patients are just so afraid of what they're experiencing. And I think um, letting the patients know that you're there to talk to and answer questions Couples, women have such high expectations with their pregnancy and their birth experience. And unfortunately, everyone is an expert when they find out someone's pregnant. Oh, let me tell you what happened when I had my children, for example, uh, with sharing stories. If a pregnancy is stressful, it doesn't go well, or it has some adverse outcome, or even a normal outcome, um, this all adds stress. So normalizing the event as much as possible will decrease the stigma and allow for greater ability to help the patient. Given the stigma, how do you screen for PPD, knowing that a patient might not speak up or tell you how she is feeling, even if she is experiencing symptoms of depression? Well, um, Jake mentioned this earlier. The most common scale that we use for screening in, in obstetrics and gynecology is the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. And what's nice about this scale is that it can be used in pregnancy as well as postpartum. There are other scales, but most commonly we use the Edinburgh. The United States Preventative Service Task Force recommends screening for postpartum depression in all women uh, who have uh, had children. So it's important for us as clinicians to look for the warning signs and to ask patients and their family members questions about these symptoms. And I agree with Kathy. I also think that we screen everyone in this situation uh, and per the guidelines and as we should. And our threshold for using, you know, additional screening tools, whether it's a PHQ-9 or, or something else, should be very low because we have to be very concerned about these new mothers because we do know the risk for them to have depressive symptoms is so high and they have this little life depending upon them now. And if you're concerned beyond a screening tool or if you are concerned that a patient may be underreporting, you need to make sure that you also are involving family members and we talk with them and try to bring them in and advocate for the patient's mental health and kind of help them be part of the treatment team if possible. I think that's a very important thing to do because they are wealths of information in, in certain situations. Earlier, we talked about PPD as existing along a continuum. Obviously, the symptoms may vary. What are some of the treatment protocols for PPD? Well, assuming that the patient is not bipolar and assuming that the patient does not have a history of a psychotic disorder, um, if we're just speaking about a unipolar postpartum depression, based on what they score on the Edinburgh scale, um, if you have a mild case, so they're scoring around 11 or 12, uh, you have to you have, want to have more frequent visits and you want to discuss medications potentially with that patient. A lot of things that are used for a postpartum depression is we use SSRIs usually are typically our first line. Um, if the patient's breastfeeding, sertraline or paroxetine are, are recommended agents uh, for that situation. We also may involve uh, a partial hospitalization program, um, and we really figure out what is workable for this patient based upon uh, the family's resources and based upon how the little one will be cared for. 
in that situation. Um, sometimes, if that doesn't work, we can look at using something like mirtazapine or uh, an, an SNRI uh, would be something that we might use as well. And we always try to offer psychotherapy for a limited time in, in those situations. When talking about medications with patients, oftentimes they are very worried about, especially if they're breastfeeding, about taking the medication and will the baby get uh, a dose of the medication, the breast milk. Sertraline and paroxetine have much lower levels uh, uh, to be found in breast milk compared to other antidepressants. Uh, but we always say that an untreated depression is more risky for the mother and the child than allowing, uh, than, than treating it with an antidepressant. So we keep that in mind as well. Um, another thing we have to focus on is making sure we're treating sleep as well. And that's something that you're going to see going poorly in a lot of patients who are having more severe type of uh, postpartum depressive symptoms. And if symptoms get very severe, so they start scoring higher on an Edinburgh scale, say around a 20 or so, or if they start having suicidal ideation or thoughts about infanticide, or if they start having psychosis, well, then that requires hospitalization. If things get really bad um, from there, we think about things like uh, brexanolone, which is an IV infusion that modulates GABA-A receptors, specifically designed for postpartum depression, but it's a 60-hour IV infusion, which makes using it very difficult. And then, of course, in the most extreme cases, we think about ECT. But for the vast majority of patients, you know, they're going to be able to manage outpatient um, with therapy and at times with antidepressants. Again, starting with the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and uh, we move on from there. One of the things that I would like to add um, to the treatment discussion is is the support. And, you know, it's very, very important to discuss with the husband or the partner and um, the family about what's going on and talk to them about the support their loved one will need where they're going through this treatment. So that's a critical piece along with the medication and along with the psychotherapy. I always say to, to, the, to the family, this is the time to rally the troops. This is when you want to have people there to support the new mom as well as to help take care of the baby because she is um, dealing with an additional thing besides just being a new mom. Great. And I think one of the important driving messages that I'm hearing from both of you is that this is really not a one-size-fits-all issue. And the topic can be really difficult to raise with patients. It is actually very, very difficult to talk with patients about sometimes. But I would say, you know, if you're kind and you take your time and you explain what's going on and you discuss with them that there is treatment and they will feel better, it works out fine in the end. But it's important to be able to take time with the patient and explain things and answer all their questions. And I agree. I think the key is education and discussion and creating that open environment for a patient to uh, discuss things with you in a way where they feel safe and they feel secure and they're not being judged. You know, when you have a mild case of this, as we said before, you really just try to make your recommendations to the patient and you try to get buy-in from the family and you get them involved, as Kathy said before, and that makes just treatment so much easier. And if you're just very open about what's happening, if you, if you don't treat it with a, a large amount of reluctance, if you just are very honest with the patient but sensitive at the same time in your delivery, you're going to be able to get the patient likely on your side. And 
that is really, I mean, ultimately the mother wants what's best for her children or the child. And that means in that situation, they need what's best for themselves. I mean, I remember back to my training days. I remember hearing Kathy stand up during OBGYN, our OBGYN uh, module uh, that we had the summer of my didactic year. And she stood up there and said, what's good for the mom is what's good for the baby. And that is completely true during pregnancy. And that extends to after delivery. For the PAs listening who don't work in this space, what resources do you recommend for more information? Well, the American Psychiatric Association and SAMHSA have a joint initiative called the SMI Advisor, and SMI stands for Serious Mental Illness. This has a lot of nice, quick information that you can find online to get providers who aren't necessarily experienced in working with mental health issues some information that they can readily use. And that applies to postpartum depression as well as other psychiatric issues. I also think that going on to uh, the ACOG website and uh, looking at National Women's Health Center's site, those are nice resources as well. And there's a lot of good information for providers to find on there in regard to this. You should consider postpartum depression in moms who have anxiety about the health of their infant or concern about their ability to take care of that infant, as well as to consider it in a mom who has lack of interest in the infant's needs and what the infant is doing. Those are all things that should make a clinician who's not working in OB-GYN or psychiatry have some thoughts that there might be postpartum depression in um, this mom. Great. These are really some really great recommendations. So, Kathy and Jake, this has been so incredibly helpful. And if there's one thing that you hope the listeners take away from this conversation, what would it be? The key to me is that you need to repeatedly educate the patient and her supports before and after the pregnancy. The more time you spend educating and communicating, the better your rapport will be in the time leading up to delivery and following delivery. And that will lead to more honesty from your patient and more trust in your recommendations. And if you have that, your ability to treat this patient effectively will increase dramatically. My two takeaways are, you know, you need to consider a postpartum depression in your differential of patients postpartum to be able to recognize it and to provide the help that they need. The other thing I would say is that it's important to have a connection with a psychiatric provider who... I can't tell you the times as an OB-GYN PA who I called a psych provider to get help taking care of a patient with postpartum depression or psychosis. So already knowing someone who to call for when you get a patient in your office who needs help right away is very, very helpful. Again, such great advice. Postpartum depression is a very serious topic, and as PAs, we most certainly must be prepared to recognize symptoms and help patients find the best treatment. You've given us a few tools for our trade today, and thank you both so much for lending your expertise to us. Thanks, Andrea. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Great working with you, Jake. Always good to hear from you, Kathy. Visit the PA Foundation website at pa-foundation.org for additional resources. And while you're there, be sure to catch up on all our Vital Mind episodes. This episode of Vital Minds is a collaboration effort between the NCCPA Health Foundation and the PA Foundation and is part of the Partners in Mental Health Initiative. This initiative leverages a collective impact change strategy to improve the nation's health 
by advancing the roles of PAs and strengthening partnerships to address issues impacting mental health and substance use disorders. Achieving that goal means encouraging all PAs, regardless of discipline or practice settings, to be champions of mental health care and to join in the movement to reduce the stigma associated with mental illness. Join the movement today. Sitting in for James Millward, I'm Andrea Lowe, and this is Vital Minds.